Chapter Three, Part Two of Zone Policeman Eighty Eight. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Zone Policeman Eighty Eight, a close-range study of the Panama Canal and its wonders by Harry A. Frank. Chapter Three, Part Two. At last I had crossed all the isthmus and heard the wash of the Caribbean at my feet. It was the Sunday following Argaton days, and nearly a month since my landing on the zone. The morning train from Empire left me at the lakeside city for a run over locks and dam which the working days had not allowed, and there being no other train for hours, I set off along the railroad to walk the seven miles to Cologne. On either side lay hot, rampant jungle, low and almost swampy. It was noon when I reached the broad railroad yards and zone storehouses of Mount Hope and turned aside to Cristobal Hotel. Cristobal is built on the very fringe of the ocean with the roll of waves at the very edge of its windows and a far-reaching view of the Caribbean where the ceaseless zone breeze is born. There stands the famous statue of Columbus protecting the Indian maid, crude humor in bronze, for Columbus brought Indian maids anything but protection. Near at hand in the joyous tropical sunshine, lay a great steamer that in another week would be back in New York, tying up in sleet and ice. A western bronco and a lariat might perhaps have dragged me on board, with a struggle. There is no more line of demarcation between Cristobal and Cologne than between Encon and Panama. A khaki-clad zone policeman patrols one sidewalk, a black one in the sweltering dark blue uniform and heavy winter helmet of the Republic of Panama lounges on the other side of a certain street. On one side are the enumerated tags of the census. On the other, none. Cross the street, and you fill at once a foreigner. It is distinctly unlawful to sell liquor on Sunday, or to gamble at any time on the canal zone. It is, therefore, with something approaching a shock, that one finds everything wide open and raging just across the street. I wandered out past Highball's merry-go-round, where huge negro bucks are laughing and playing and riding away their month's pay on the wooden horses like the children they are, and so on to the edge of the sea. Unlike Panama, Cologne is flat and square-blocked, as it is considerably darker in complexion with its large mixture of Negroes from the Caribbean shores and islands. Uncle Sam seems to have taken the city's fine beach away from her, but then she probably never took any other advantage of it than to turn it into a garbage heap as bad as once was Bottle Alley. At one end is a cement swimming pool with the announcement, Only for gold employees of the ICC, or PRR, and guests of Washington Hotel. It is merely a softer way of saying, only white Americans with money can bathe here. Then beyond are the great hospitals, second only to those of Encon, the white wards built out over the sea, and behind them the black where the Negroes must be content with second-hand breezes. Some of the costs of the canal are here, sturdy black men in a sort of bed-tick pajamas sitting on verandas or in wheelchairs, some with one leg gone, some with both, one could not but wonder how it feels to be hopelessly ruined in body early in life for helping to dig a ditch for a foreign power that, however well it may treat you materially, cares not a whistle-blast more for you than for its old worn-out locomotives rusting away in the jungle. Under the beautiful royal palms beyond, all bent inward in the constant breeze, are park benches where one can sit with the Atlantic spreading away to infinity before, breaking with its ages-old mysterious roll on the shore, just as it did before the Europeans' white sails first broke the gleaming skyline. Out to sea runs the growing breakwater from Toro Point, the great wireless tower, 
yet just across the bay on a little jutting dense grown tongue of land is the jungle hut of a jungle family as utterly untouched by civilization as was the verdant valley of Typhi on the day melville and toby came stumbling down into it from the hills above but meanwhile i was not getting the long hours of unbroken sleep the heavy mental toil of enumeration requires free government bachelor quarters make strange bedfellows or at least room fellows quartermasters like justice are hopelessly blind or I might have been assigned quarters upon the financial knoll, where habits and hours were a bit more in keeping with my own. But a bachelor is a bachelor on the zone, and though he be clerk to his highness the colonel himself, he may find himself carelessly tossed onto a roughneck brotherhood. House 47 was distinctly an abode of roughnecks. A roughneck, it may be essential to explain to those who never ate at the same table with one, is a bull-necked, whole-hearted, hard-headed, cast-iron fellow who can ride the beam of a snorting, rock-tearing steam-shovel all day, rustle the night through with various starred Hennessy and its rivals, and continue that round indefinitely without once failing to turn up to straddle his beam in the morning. He seems to have been created without the insertion of nerves, though he is never lacking in nerve. He is a fine fellow in his way, but you sometimes wish his way branched off from yours for a few hours, when bedtime or a mood for quiet musing comes in. He is a man you are glad to meet in a saloon, if you are in a mood to be there, or tearing away at the cliffs of Calabria, but there are other places where he does not seem exactly to fit into the landscape. House 47, I say, was a house of roughnecks. That fact became particularly evident soon after supper, when the seven phonographs were striking up their seven kinds of ragtime on seven sides of us, and it was the small hours before the poker games, carried on in much the same spirit as Comanche warfare, broke up throughout the house. Then, too, many a roughneck is far from silent, even after he has fallen asleep, and about the time complete quiet seemed to be settling down, it was 4.30, and a jarring chorus of alarm clocks wrought new upheaval. Then there was each individual annoyance. Let me barely mention two or three. Of my roommates, Mitch had sat at a locomotive throttle fourteen years in the States and Mexico, besides the four years he had been hauling dirt out of the cut. Youthful ambition Mitch had left behind, for though he could still look forward to forty, railroad rules had so changed in the States during his absence that he would have had to learn his trade over again to be able to run there. Moreover, four years in the zone does not make a man look forward with pleasure to a State's winter. So Mitch, like many another zoner, was planning to buy, with the savings of his $210 a month, when the job is done, a chunk of land on some sunny slope of a southern State and settle down for an easy descent through old age. There was nothing objectionable about Mitch, except perhaps his preference for late-hour poker. But he had a way of stopping with one leg out of his trousers when at last all the house had calmed down and cots were ceasing to creak, to make some such wholly irrelevant remark as, By that dispatcher gave me 609 today, and she wouldn't pull a greased string out of a knot-hole. And thereby always hung a tail that was sure to range over half the track mileage of the state's and wander off somewhere into the sandy cactus wilderness of Chihuahua, at least, before Mitch succeeded in getting out of the other trouser leg. The cot directly across from my own groaned, occasionally, under the coarse-grained bulk of Tom. Tom was a roughneck par excellence, so much so that even in a household of them he was known as Tom the Roughneck, which to Tom was high tribute. Some preferred to call him Tom the Noisy. He was built like a steam caisson, or an oil barrel, though without fat, with a neck that reminded you of a mirror bull with his head down just before the escort, and when he neglected to button his undershirt, a not infrequent oversight, 
he displayed the hairy chest of a mammoth gorilla. Tom's philosophy of getting through life was exactly the same as his philosophy of getting through a rocky hillside with his steam shovel. When it came to argument, Tom was invariably right, not that he was oversupplied with logic, but because he possessed a voice and the bellows to work it that could rise to the roar of his own steam shovel on those weeks when he chose to enter the shovel competition, and would have utterly overthrown, grounded out, and annihilated James Stuart Mill himself. Tom always should have had money, for your roughneck on the zone has decidedly the advantage over the white-collared college graduate when the pay car comes around. But of course, being a genuine roughneck, Tom was always deep in debt, except on the three days after payday, when he was rolling in wealth. Once, I fancied the bulk of my troubles was over. Tom disappeared, leaving not a trace behind, except his working clothes tumbled on and about his cot. Then it turned out that he was not dead, but an Ancon hospital taken the Keeley cure, and one summer evening he blew in again, his cure effected, with a bottle in his coat pocket and two inside his vest. So the next day there was Tom celebrating his recovery all over House 47, and when next morning he did finally go back to his shovel, there were scattered about the room six empty quart bottles, each labeled whiskey. Luckily, Tom ran a shovel instead of a passenger train, and could claw away at his hillside as savagely as he chose without any danger whatsoever, beyond that of killing himself or an odd nigger or two. We had other treasures on exhibition in 47. There was Shorty, for example. Shorty was a jolly, ugly, open-handed, four-eyed little snipe of a roughneck machinist who had lost, in the line of duty, two fingers highly useful in his trade. In consequence, he was now, after the generous fashion of the ICC, on full pay for a year without work, providing he did not leave the zone. And while Shorty, like the great majority of us, was a very tolerable member of society under the ordinary circumstances of having to earn his three squares a day, paid leisure hung most ponderously about him. The amusements in Empire are few, and not especially amusing. There is really only one unfailing one. That is slid in glass receptacles across a yellow varnished counter down on Railroad Avenue opposite Empire Machine Shops. So it happened that Shorty was gradually winning the title of a 33-degree booze fighter and passengers on any afternoon train who took the trouble to glance in at a wide-open door just atlanticward of the station might have beheld him with his back to the track and one foot slightly raised and resting lightly, and with the nonchalance of long practice, on a gas pipe that had missed its legitimate mission. In fact, Shorty had come to that point where he would rather be caught in church than found dead without a bottle on him, and arriving home overflowing with joy about midnight, slept away most of the day in forty-seven, that he might spend as much of the night as the early closing laws of the zone permitted at the amusement headquarters of Empire. With these few hints of the life that raged beneath the roof of 47, it may perhaps be comprehensible, without going into detail, why I came to contemplate a change of quarters. I detest a kicker. I have small use for any but the man who will take his allotted share with the rest of the world without either whining or snarling. Yet when an official government census enumerator falls asleep on the edge of a tenement wash-tub with question dead on his lips, or solemnly sets down a crow-black Jamaican as white, it is Uncle Sam who is suffering, and time for correction. But it is one thing for a Canal Zone employee to resolve to move, and quite another to carry out that resolution. Nero was a meek, unassertive, submissive, tractable little chap, keenly sensible to the suffering of his fellows, compared with a Zone quartermaster. So the first time I ventured to push open the screen door next to the post office, I was grateful to escape unmaimed. But at last, when I had done a whole month's penance in 47, I resorted to strategy. 
On March 1st, I entered the dreaded precinct shielded behind the boss with his contagious smile, and the musical quartermaster of umpire was overthrown and defeated, and I marched forth clutching in one hand a new assignment to quarters. That night I moved. The new, or more properly the older, room was in House 35, a one-story building of the old French type, many of which the Americans revamped upon taking possession of the Ismanian junk heap, across and a bit down the graveled street. It was a single room with no roommate to question, which I might decorate and otherwise embellish according to my own personal idiosyncrasies. At the back, with a door between, dwelt the superintendent of the zone telephone system, with a convenient instrument on his table. In short, fortune seemed at last to be grinning broadly upon me. But the sequel. I hate to mention it. I won't. It's absurdly commonplace. Commonplace? Not a bit of it. He was a champion, an artist in his speciality. How can I have used that word in connection with his incomparable performance? Or attempt to give a hint of life on the canal zone without mentioning the most conspicuous factor in it? He lived in the next room south, a half-inch wooden partition reaching halfway to the ceiling between his pillow and mine. By day he lay on his back in the right-hand seat of a locomotive cab with his hand on the throttle and the soles of his boots on the boiler plate. He was just long enough to fit into that position without wrinkling. During the early evening, he lay on his back in a stout mission rocking chair on the front porch of House 35, Empire, CZ. And about 8 p.m. daily, he retired within to lie on his back in a regulation ICC metal cot. They are stoutly built. One pine half-inch from my own. Obviously twenty-four hours a day of such onerous occupation had left some slight effects on his figure. His shape was strikingly similar to that of a push-ball. Had he fallen down at the top of Encon or Balboa Hill, it would have been an even bet whether he would have rolled down sideways or endwise, if his general type of build and specifications will permit any such distinction. When I first came upon him, reposing serenely in the porch rocking chair on the cushion that upholstered his spinal column, I was pleased. Clearly he was no roughneck. He couldn't have been and kept his figure. There was no question but that he was perfectly harmless. His stories ought to prove cheerful and laughter-provoking and kindly. His very presence seemed to promise to raise several degrees the merriment in that corner of House 35. It did. Toward eight, as I have hinted, he transferred from rocking chair to cot. He was not afflicted with troublesome nerves. At times he was an entire minute in falling asleep. Usually, however, his time was something under the half, and he slept with the innocent, undisturbed sleep of a babe for at least twelve unbroken hours, unless the necessity of getting across to the cut to his engine absolutely prohibited. Just there was the trouble. His first gentle, slumberous breath sounded like a small boy sliding down the sheet-iron roof of thirty-five. His second resembled a force of carpenters tearing out the half-grown partitions. His third... Uh, but mere words are an absurdity. At times the noises from his gorilla-like throat softened down until one merely fancied himself in the hog corral of a Chicago stockyard. At others we prayed that we might at once be transferred there. A thousand times during the night we were certain he was on the very point of choking to death, and set up in a bed praying he wouldn't, and offering our month's salary to charity if he would. And through all our fatiguing anguish he snorted undisturbedly on. In House 35 he was known as the Sloth. It was a gentle and kindly title. There were a few inexperienced inmates who had not yet entirely given up hope. The long hours of the night were spent in solemn conference. Pounding on the walls with hammers, chairs, and shoe heels was like singing a lullaby. 
one genius invented a species of foghorn which proved very effective in waking up all empire east of the tracks except the sloth some took to dropping their heavier and more dispensable possessions over the partition one memorable night a fellow sufferer cast over a young dry goods box which bouncing from the snorer's figures of the floor caused him to lose a beat one and the feat is still one of the proud memories of thirty-five on Sundays, when all the rest of the world was up and shaved and breakfasted and off on the 839 of a brilliant sunny day to Panama, the sloth would still be imperturbably snorting and choking in the depths of his cot, and in the evening, as the train roamed back through the fresh cool jungle dusk and deposited us at Empire Station, and we crossed the wooden bridge before the hotel and began to climb the graveled path behind, hoping against hope that we might find crepe on that door, from the night ahead would break out on our ears, a sound as of a hippopotamus struggling wildly against going down for the third and last time. Most annoying of all, the sloth was not even a bona fide bachelor. He proudly announced that, though he was a model of marital virtue, he had not lived with his wife for many years. I never heard a man who knew him by night ask why. It was close upon criminal negligence on the part of the ICC to overlook its opportunity in this matter. There were so many, many unhabited hilltops in the zone where a private swath dwelling might have been slapped together from the remains of falling towns at Catan End. Near it, a grandstand might even have been erected and admission charged. Or at least the daily climb to it would have helped to reduce the pushball figure, and thereby have improved the general appearance of the canal zone force. End of Chapter 3, Part 2 Recording by Todd